All right, and we are back once again to explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and this evening... We're having to shift gears a little bit. We had a guest lined up and we ran into some technical issues. They were unable to connect with us due to a hardware issue, but we're going to have them back on. You guys aren't going to want to miss that episode at all. I'm not going to spill the beans on who it is, but it's someone that I think our audience will find highly interesting. It's going to be a good time. So we're looking forward to having that particular guest on our program. So because of the technical issues that Kevin and I have run into this evening and being able to, uh, get that guest booked or have anybody on, we have elected to shift gears and talk about something that we have no notes for. We have not prepared for this at all. We just literally came up with this topic literally maybe three minutes ago. So we're going with no notes. We're going off the cuff. We're just going to have a conversation like we usually do with one another. And we're going to record it for posterity's sake. For your sake out there in YouTube land and in Zencaster land and in podcast land. And what we're going to talk about is a follow-up to the most recent episode that aired with uh, Brian McLaren. We had him on to discuss his new book, Do I Stay Christian? And for a lot of people that have deconstructed their faith and who have gone through this process, who have grown up in a strict fundamentalist household or who have grown up in the throes of evangelicalism, whenever the answers that brought peace and that brought comfort for a long time begin to cause more problems than than they solve, that can be a very real question at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Do I stay Christian? Is this something that I buy into? Is this whole thing just a big bill of goods and there's nothing good that can come from it? What do I do? Like, How do I navigate these waters? What are the questions I even need to ask? And then once those questions are formulated in the mind of the Christian that's going through this period of doubt, this period of detoxification or deconstruction or whatever term you want to use for it, that question will inadvertently pop up. It's inevitable. But it may not be a question that comes up in a specific sense, it, it may not come up in a way where it's formulated, where the, the questioner asks, well, do I want to remain Christian or not? But it's a seed that might play a part in formulating what someone's subconscious ideology is. They may be wrestling with that concept subconsciously, even if it's not brought up in a clean, distinct package and it's not phrased that way. Yeah, It's an important question. And to that end, Kevin and I thought, literally five minutes ago now, because here we are three minutes into the episode. Should we have a conversation about why we have stayed Christian? Kevin had that idea. I'm just, I'm going to give you credit, brother. And yeah, I think it's a great idea. It'll be a great conversation. Why have I stayed Christian? Why have you stayed Christian? And that's really what we're going to talk about this evening to build off of what we discussed last week. I had someone send me an email not too long ago, and, and that's what really sparked this thought is they asked me why I was still a Christian. And I have several friends now who are atheists. Some of those friends used to be preachers. Some of those friends never were Christians, and I met them later in life. Uh, some were very devout Christians and different. They weren't necessarily ministers or, or pastors, but they were very devout in their church and in their faith, and they no longer claim Christianity at all. So I have agnostic yep. friends. I have 
athe- atheistic friends or atheist friends. <laughs> and I have those who are just kind of in the middle and they're not sure what to believe. They're not necessarily agnostic. Same. I mean, they, yeah. they still want to hang on to Christianity, but oftentimes they question if they really still are a Christian because of the questions they have, because of the doubts they have. And I think that this is just going to be a fun conversation because other people need to realize the questions that go through my mind, the questions that go through your mind, the the doubts that are there, the doubts that remain, the uncertainties that exist, because it's important to understand what faith actually is. And this is something recently I've delved into when I, once again, was preparing for my book, my new book. It is coming out this summer, man, this summer, probably within the next two months, it'll be out in the next two months. Okay. Uh, Maybe, maybe. No, I I think it'll be within the next two months and everything is done. I'm just waiting on a few more folks to read through it, making sure everything's good. But uh, but I want to derail you just for a second. Remind me when we are done with this podcast, I have something about your book that I need to talk to you about. So sorry, audience, you're just going to have to be kept in suspense a little (laughs) while longer, but I have something I need to, I need to talk to you about. So anyway, please continue. Good deal. Good deal. So Anyway, I just I'm bringing that point up because I do discuss that in the book. I don't discuss it a whole lot, but I do talk toward the end about the importance of faith, and I have an appendix chapter, if you will, where I go into detail about what what faith looks like, what it is, especially comparing what we have today is this more westernized idea of faith versus what faith originally looked like to the disciples of Jesus when Jesus was teaching about faith and how they would have understood faith in comparison with how many of us understand faith today, which is which is vastly different, quite frankly. And it's yep. something that we don't think a lot about. I know I didn't. And so I think it's going to be a really good uh, topic, a really good chapter in my book where I do touch on that. But as far as this question tonight, why are we still Christians? This is something, Lee, I know you and I have talked about off air And we have ourselves discussed this a whole lot. And I want to back up before we begin to answer that question and first lay forth some of the tensions as to why that would even be a question that people would be interested in. Why that's something that we ourselves have deeply contemplated. And quite frankly, I still contemplate (laughs) quite a bit of, of why am I a Christian? Should I remain a Christian? What does that look like? And I'll I'll go ahead and mean, yeah, what does it mean? Yeah. And I'll be the first to tell you, had I not changed how I understand the Bible, I would I would not be a Christian right now. Yeah. That yeah. is that is how important the information in my new book is and it was and is to me. Because if it wasn't for discovering new ways, and when I say new ways, I think proper ways, ways that necessarily aren't new, but they were new to me, (laughs) ways that have actually been around ever since the scriptures have been around, but new ways for me to understand the Bible, I don't think I would still be a Christian. And it's, it's no wonder, to me at least, why so many people are either A, leaving Christianity altogether, or B, they just really don't care anymore. I mean, you have some who are adamantly against and opposed Christianity now who have left it. Then you have those who just don't care anymore. And and there's really, to me, no wonder why. Because if, if, if they were taught to read and understand the Bible like I was taught to read and understand the Bible, like you were, Lee, then it's going to lead to a lot of questions. And when you go to certain people to try to have those questions answered and you receive the kind of answers that I received, that you received. Or that we even used to offer. Yeah, that we used to give, that we used to try to stomach ourselves, 
then it just becomes too much for a lot of people and they can't do it yep. anymore. So I've, I want to talk about that, that tension for a few minutes. And I, I want to begin with, you know, I've, I've talked about it for a couple minutes, but begin passing it on to you first, because this is some, this is a road that you have walked down. You were an atheist at one point. So mm -hmm. explain why there's so much tension and why you think today there's so much tension between where, you know, the, the idea of should I stay a Christian? Should I remain a Christian? Why, why do churches seem to be losing members left and right? I mean, why does Christianity seem to be really at a crossroads right now, especially in America? Well, I think there's multiple ways that that can be answered. But to my own experience, I think I, for me, what led me to my period of about two years or so where I just left faith behind entirely, it has to do with what you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Most people, whenever they go through that season, that leave it behind, that want nothing to do with it, and they become militant atheists against faith. And that's kind of where I was. I wasn't as hardcore about it as a lot of other atheists that I have known and that I still know today. But I, I was definitely dead set against faith and dead set against religion, period. And that's primarily because of the seed of bitterness that had taken root within my own heart based on my experience. And I'm going to get kind of raw here and I'm going to get kind of real. And I've alluded to this in some of the previous episodes we've done, specifically the solo episodes that I did. And I had mentioned whenever I went into atheism, I saw a disconnect between what I had been taught Christianity was and how a Christian ought to live versus what manifested and what, it, what had happened was my parents had divorced and they had divorced because of my father's infidelity. And that's as far as I'll go into it on this. I don't think I went into it that far on that previous episode, but he was not faithful to my mother at all. And that was ultimately what led to their marriage failing. And within that, they tried. My mother wanted desperately to keep the marriage together. My father wanted to keep the marriage together, but they both had different terms for keeping the marriage together that they couldn't agree on. She wanted him to get help for what was fueling his infidelity. And he wasn't willing to do that in his mind. She, he should just be allowed to do what he wished and she should be able to be there and accept him as he was and accept his behavior and his indiscretions. And that was, that just was not going to work for her. He essentially wanted an open relationship and she said, nah, homie, that ain't, that ain't going to do. So they ended up getting divorced. Well, my dad, he was the music minister in our church growing up, Pentecostal. He was the piano player. And he is a killer piano player. He's one of the best I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot. And I'll say that he and I are not on good terms. We haven't been for a while. And that's a tragic story for another time. But he's still one of the best musicians I've ever heard in my life. He's incredible, incredibly talented. And he was held in high regard for that talent in our church. He would oftentimes speak in our church if the preacher wasn't available to preach. He would lead testimony service. We would have a service in our church, and a lot of Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches have this, where they would have their song service, and then a preacher or, or member, a lay member of the congregation even, would get up in the pulpit and talk about what God had done for them, and then the floor is open to every member to stand up and share about what God had done for them in that week, in that month, the things they were experiencing in their lives, the thoughts that they had had, what the Holy Spirit had revealed to them. 
And it was, it was a really cool in, in concept, but sometimes it could descend into chaos. Everybody's wanting to talk. No one's wanting to talk. You can have long, awkward silences because people don't know how to fill the silence. And then you'd have everyone trying to talk over each other. Anyway, point being, he was very actively involved in church. I was very actively involved in church. My great grandpa was a preacher that helped establish that church. My grandmother played guitar in it. That was our entire life. And whenever you're told this is what Christianity is, and this is the way Christians live their lives, and then you have someone that's supposed to be the representative in your mind that's a reflection and that embodies all of those characteristics, and you see how far away they are from it in secret. And then even when those secrets come out, there's a refusal to repent. There's a refusal to leave that behind in favor of that higher calling that Christ calls us to. Even at the peril of destroying your family, why would I want anything to do with that? I see the pain that it's causing my mother. I see the anxiety it's causing my sisters. I see the apathy that's setting in in the heart of my brother. Talking about my own siblings, not my brothers and sisters in Christ. I see all that, and I see the destruction that that has, and I see this is this is just a shell game. This is behavioral management. The, the hypocrisy was too much for me. That experience left a deep-seated bitterness in my own heart, and I really think that's why a lot of people leave the church behind, why a lot of people leave religion behind just in general, because their experiences, they are hurt by those that are in the church. They are hurt by a particular doctrine that the church espouses, or they see the damage done to someone else, someone who's a friend or a loved one or a family member or whatever else. And as a result of that damage, why would I want anything to do with that system that causes so much toxicity and so much harm? They get bitter to it and they become, I don't want to say violent against it, but they become, metaphorically speaking, violently opposed to it. That's where I was. I think in another sense, though, what you mentioned before, people just don't care anymore. Apathy plays a role. Mm-hmm. You get to where it just doesn't matter. And that's really what became seated. And I don't want to speak for him. I know he listens. So Lance, you know, I love you. That's my brother. I know he occasionally listens to the podcast, but I think that's what sort of entered his heart in terms of faith, because I would say he's spiritual. He's not one that's really religious though. He would call himself a soft agnostic. He can acknowledge that there may be a higher power, Mm -hmm. but he thinks that it takes a tremendous amount of arrogance and hubris to know with certainty the nature of that power or what that power is. So that's kind of where he lands. But a lot of his experience was due to apathy. Mm. He went through the same thing I did, but it was just at the point where he he just didn't care. And I think a lot of people either become bitter towards religion in general or it's religion and faith ceases to become helpful for them. And so they just quit caring about it. Yeah. And I think that is in large part, the, the duopoly that exists in terms of people leaving faith behind, either they're actively damaged against it, or it's not helpful to them anymore. It doesn't really serve any purpose for their life. And so they just leave it behind. Yeah. And in addition to that, to throw in another category, if you will, I think a lot of people study themselves out of faith. A lot of people study themselves out oh, yeah. of Christianity, and I have heard atheists say the the best way to make an atheist is to teach Christians to read their Bible. 
And <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to, true, I used though. to, I used to mock that, but it is, it, it is very true. The, the the friends that I mentioned earlier, um, one of them is is one of the probably one of the smartest people I know in Scripture as far as knowing what the Bible says, and that's why I always make a distinction. There's it's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another to know what the Bible means and yeah. how to appropriate it for, for our use today. And those are the conversations I feel like people are not having enough. Because if you were to take a straight literalist approach, a biblicist approach, whatever you want to call it, then the Bible is so convoluted. It's so disjointed oh, yeah. that you can really make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And that has, to for me at least, that's been my biggest struggle coming from a debater background, having debated certain doctrines, I can look at the Bible and see that the Bible can can really say a lot of different things. And everything yeah. really comes down to hermeneutics. <laughs> because yeah. most of the disagreements uh, among Christians today is not what the Bible says. It's, it's in large part, not even what does the Bible mean? It's how do we apply it today? That's really, that's really where, where the rub is because I used to think, oh, well, it's all about interpretation. Not really. Most Christians will interpret a lot of things, at least a lot of the scriptures the same way for that day and time. You know, Christians can look at the Bible and say, this is what this meant to the original audience. Now, there are obviously some disagreements in interpretation. I don't want to make it seem like everybody interprets the same way. But by and large, most people can go to the original context. They can study and they can say, this is what was going on during this time. This is what it meant to the original audience. The difficulty is, well, how do we apply that today? How do we use this? And what does it mean for us 2000 years later? A different continent, different language, different situation, different culture, different worldviews, different civilizations, so on and so forth. How do we use it? And if you see how Christians have used, and I, I'm using the word used purposefully, because really that's what people are using. They're, they're using the Bible. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and when you see how Christians have used it, so many people have related to the Bible differently throughout the centuries. And even today, in the same cultures, in the same time period, people are still utilizing the Scripture very differently from one another. I mean, sometimes what 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 one person is going to use the Scripture for, it's going to be the exact opposite for another Christian. So that really caused a lot of questions in my mind of why did God do it this way? Because yeah. it's it's easy to look at people who really don't care and they're just trying to justify something or they're just trying to rip the Bible out of its you know, context. Obviously, there's people out there who are oblivious to what the context is and, and they're just using the Bible all for all sorts of ways. I'm not talking about those types of people. I'm talking about people who are sincere, who are honest, but who are also studious. And yet they're still coming to different conclusions because I look at a lot of my past, my background, and I can see and understand why people believe that way. I obviously don't agree with it anymore, but if, if like me, if they were taught to view the Bible a certain way, it really makes sense unless you're later challenged, unless there's something in your life that causes you to question yeah, sure, it works, but you could say that about just about every denomination, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, you can you can say, well, if someone was raised in a certain environment and they were taught to view the Bible. I mean, if I was raised in a Pentecostal environment, 
I mean, most of the New Testament talks about miracles. I mean, the whole, you know, look at First Corinthians. It's, it's, there's so much about miraculous gifts there that if that's how I was taught to read the Bible and believe that that's still going on today, that's, yeah, I, that would make a lot of sense. And so I, I begin to, you know, even Calvinism, quite frankly, I can't stomach Calvinism because of the bad fruit that it bears. <laughs> and, you know, we, we tried to get a buddy of mine on who's a Calvinist until we sent him some questions uh, that we wanted to discuss on the program. And he said he, you know, he wanted to, uh, well, I don't want to make him look bad, but he did say he wanted to spend more time studying those questions. He didn't feel prepared um, to discuss those yet. But even then, though, I understand why he would be a Calvinist. I, yeah. I don't agree with it, but I can understand why. And it, it was being able to identify and kind of immerse myself in different ideologies and different understandings and different views and doctrines that people hold to and realize, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, I can see this and I can see this and I can see this and I can see this. And we can be hard on people of the past, right? And we can look back and say, wow, how can anybody ever believe this was okay? Well, <laughs> if they were taught to, to view the Bible through a certain lens, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect. Yeah. Well, if they were if they were taught that these folks from Africa who have really dark skin were subhuman, if you're told that from the very beginning of your life, yeah. you're going to believe that until your experience proves otherwise, until you meet someone who's black or brown, someone of a different race who's articulate and who's ever bit as smart, if not smarter than you are, and you begin to see, well, hey, maybe these people aren't so bad after all. And yeah. It, it's it's funny because whenever I was really entrenched in, you know, the one cup strict literalist theological paradigm, that hermeneutical paradigm in which the, you know, the Bible serves as a rule book and a law book for yeah. life. Like we've talked about on this podcast countless times. It's funny because the way a lot of racists look at black and brown people was the way that I looked at my former brethren in the Pentecostal circles or yeah you know, folks in the Baptist church or the Methodist church, I view them not as subhuman, but they're not real Christians because they just want to justify what they want to do. I made no effort to understand why they believe what they believed or where they were coming from until really recently, just within the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and I bring all that up to say, why did God do it that way? If, if there is a God and God is all-knowing, why in the world would he leave us with a bunch of texts that are obviously up to interpretation, and, and not just interpretation, as I talked about earlier, but also application in ways that people are, were going to use and still are using those texts to harm others, to oppress others, to, to do all sorts of horrific things to people, believing that that's what they're supposed to do, or even perhaps at, at best justifying it by using the Bible. And you, you ask yourself, why? Why would God allow himself to be so misrepresented? And even when we talk about Jesus coming to earth, and I think Jesus corrected a lot of those things and reversed a lot of those things, but even then, you're thinking three years in the whole span of history is the one time that this world got a glimpse of God. And <laughs> why? I mean, why? Why is the Bible not clear on the things we, we are supposed to do? And in my new book, 
I put forth what I believe to be a proper hermeneutic, and I go through and discuss these types of questions, these real questions that I struggled with, because so many people today, and this is one thing that, Lee, people constantly email you and I about, is we're not employed ministers. We're not trying to tow a party line. We're not interested in making someone happy. We're not we're not dependent upon someone giving us money to keep doing what we're doing. We're having these honest conversations because these are the things we talk about. And yeah. this is our faith. I mean, this is us trying to truly figure things out and explore <laughs> these issues honestly and get below that that superficialness, if you will, quote unquote, that sometimes that that sometimes goes along with these questions where when they're brought up, you're just given kind of a pat on the back and, oh, it's okay, just keep praying, keep studying, and they'll eventually come. Those answers will come. And, you know, no, a lot of times they don't. And we're left with those uncertainties and we're left with those questions. We're left with those doubts. And the more you study, it doesn't answer those questions. It actually sometimes brings up more works. questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and that's when I really started to expose myself to a lot of different ideas. And the more I studied and the more I exposed myself to different ideas, the more questions I had. And I even had one person say, Kevin, you're exposing yourself to too much information. Um, you know, and that, that, that could really harm you. And my response is, if, if truth is, is truth, and we think there is such thing as objective truth, and we think that God, the God of Scripture, if you will, is, is the originator of truth, and He is Himself truth, then no. To say that we have to limit ourselves on the information we consume, that, that is such a ridiculous answer. That, that would make me question Christianity itself if, if Christianity is so weak, is so fragile that I cannot qu ever question or I can never look at other information because if I do look at other information, it may end up changing my mind. If Christianity is that shallow and that weak, then it's probably not a religion worth following. It's probably not a religion worth yeah. being a part of. And, and that's why in my book, I do get really real. I, I try to go beyond the shallow, superficial answers and talk about what's worked for me and what has finally, what has finally made sense to me that I can sink my teeth into and still keep my faith. Because by and large, the more that I studied, and once again, I want to preface it through the framework in which I was given the way, the paradigm I was told to read and study the scripture, it led to all sorts of bizarre conclusions. It was very incoherent. As I said before, it was convoluted. It was disjointed. It really didn't make sense. And at the end of the day, I was told, well, just to trust because that's what you're supposed to do, which by the way, is no different than any other religion out there that when someone challenges it, they're so, oh, don't listen to those challenges. Don't listen to the objections. Don't really engage those arguments. Just accept it because this is what you've been taught and this is what you have to believe is truth. I think Christianity is stronger than that. I think Christianity is better yeah. than that. I think Christianity can, can, can stand up to those challenges, but not in the way that sometimes we try to stand up to those challenges by giving these superficial oversimplified answers that may work if you want them to work, but if you spend more than five minutes looking at the answer, you realize that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> well, and I, I think that's spot on. And dude, whenever you were talking about that approach to interpretation, 
the hermeneutic that we either inherit or we take and then develop and refine, or maybe like you and I have done, we cast it off because we find it's no longer helpful. And we even find that that hermeneutic in and of itself is anti-scriptural. It makes me think of something that I heard Dr. Jordan Peterson say once. And for those, I think our audience may know him. He became, and it's funny to me because he became likened in, in most media mainstream and middle of the row media, the left-wing media as kind of a white supremacist or huge conservative. And even though he has some conservative perspectives, he's actually more liberal in his politics. But anyway, he, he came to, he rose to prominence for standing up for free speech in Canada, which is where he's from. He's a very intelligent person. And he's written a lot, even though he's not a Christian, he's written a lot and has studied the Bible a lot to find meaning within the stories within Scripture. And one of the things that he says is that a lot of your fundamentalist Christians and atheists make the same mistake, and they both approach the Bible with a strict wooden literalist view. Mm -hmm. And a lot of fundamentalist Christians do that, but a lot of atheists that challenge the Bible read it the same way. And it's interesting whenever you think about that, a lot of atheists they take issue with the Bible and it's not really the Bible itself that they take issue with. It's the manner of interpretation. It's the way it's been interpreted. But a lot of people do that. Most people do it because they don't know any other way forward. And it's hard to make sense of how to move forward whenever, you know, everything has been appended. But, but that is ultimately the question. What do we do with the Bible? What do we do with a God that doesn't help us answer life's questions anymore? Yeah, and and sometimes makes it more confusing, and oftentimes yeah. is very confusing because it's one thing to say, "Oh, well, God gave us the answer book; just go to the Bible for all the answers." Well, that's great if it was that simple. I would love for it to be that simple, but it's not. Well, it, it's it's complex, no, it and and I wonder why. And I still wonder well, it, why. And I'm always going to wonder why. Why did God make it so stinking complex? And yeah. and it's easy for me now that I've studied. I, I, Lee, I've read 250 to 300 books just to write this one book. And that doesn't include the lectureships. That doesn't include um, speaking to multiple professors in their area expertise. The average person does not have time to do that. And as I was yeah. actually studying, someone asked me, they said, well, Kevin, it took you all of this study and all of this contemplation and all these conversations to come to what you think is the proper way to understand the Bible. And look, I'm not ignorant and and I'm not I'm not ignorant to that fact. You're anything but ignorant. I am well, ignorant, <laughs> but I'm not ignorant to that fact, right? I'm not ignorant that what I'm putting forth it, yeah, most people, well first of all, nobody's going to just pick up the Bible. And, you know, you always hear, well if if you were on a strain, you know, strain an island somewhere and you read the Bible, how would you understand? Who who knows, right? I, I don't think that's ever happened. Who knows? We do know, though, what happens when people are in all sorts of different parts of the world and they pick up the Bible and they read it for themselves. They come to all sorts of conclusions. I mean, we've got 45,000, 45,000 different Christian denominations right now. And those have all really just taken place since the Reformation, when people were able to to start reading the Bible for themselves and studying for themselves. Prior, they weren't able to do that. So really, this has all just happened. And even then, it took a while for the average person, the commoner, to be able to have access to the Bible, much less read and it. To attain, yeah, to attain the literacy necessary yeah. to and, be able to and, read and, it. And then it's taken even longer for that for women because of lack of education and those types of things for them available. So 
when you when you think about it, only over the past two or three hundred years, the the commoner has had access to the Bible, and there are still places where the common person doesn't have access to the Bible. But even if you just take into consideration the past few hundred years, look at how much diversity has come from the Bible. Where Christian, there, there's really not just one stream of Christianity. There are many streams of Christianity. Forty-five thousand of them, and yeah. yeah, and 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 then there's there's fragmented groups within those denominations, and within those denominations, there's fragmented congregations, and within those fragmented con- congregations, there's fragmented individuals, and. Once again, you start wondering why, why, and that's my biggest question. That 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 is my biggest question, and you know that's really why I wanted to do this book because I feel like it's oftentimes not addressed, or at least not in a way that the common person like myself can can access this and to hear alternatives that make sense that we can still hold to our intellectual honesty that we can still be honest with the observable world around us. We don't have to deny that which is demonstrably true, but we can still be honest with the context of the Bible and find a way forward on how we can, as I said before, appropriate that to, to use it in our day and time in a way that I feel like I can still claim Christianity, but I can still claim honesty. I'm not being asked to abandon critical thinking. I'm not being asked to suppress compassion. But if, if ever... Christianity demands that I suppress my compassion or abandon critical thinking. I will abandon Christianity first before I do that. Well, and to answer that question, and I, I think you and I are pretty much in the same place as far as those terms go, and we'll flesh that out a little bit more as this goes on. But to answer the question of why, you know, the first question that you asked re- related to why is why did God choose to do it this way? Yeah. Why is the Bible so convoluted? Why is it so hard to follow? And that is a question that I have had, but I don't think that question has bugged me maybe as much as it's bugged you. Um, for me, the answers, I don't want to say it's a simple answer. It's not a simplistic hey, answer. I'll take it, me, man. I'll take it. <laughs> to me, it makes sense. I mean, and this may be helpful for some of our listeners. You may hear it and be like, eh, yeah, whatever. But I really think that the Bible is what it is because it is a product of its time and place. Yeah. And the further removed we are in terms of time and culture, the more difficult it's going to be to peruse it and to really understand it. I mean, you have so much. And, and think about this. I, w- I went to lunch with the family's minister and the, the main minister at our, at our church a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about language. And we were talking about just how interesting language is. And one of the things that's really interesting to me, something else I learned from Jordan Peterson, of all people, is that communication, oral communication, the way we communicate with one another, because right now you and I, our brains are connecting with one another through language and the way language works more language isn't just centered in in literal speech it's also it's primarily metaphorical it's primarily symbolic a lot of the symbols that we talk about on our podcast a lot of the metaphors and similes and idioms and figures of speech that we use they make sense for us because they're culturally situated in our time and place but you take our language back then even if you have a universal translator in which Anything that we say, the words are translated or maybe even transliterated into the language of the time. 
they're not going to have any idea what we're talking about because the metaphors and idioms that we use are so foreign and so far removed from them. And that's part of why a universal translator is probably not ever going to happen because you have different rules of grammar. You have different rules of speech. You know, you put the verbs in different places. Like in Latin, the verb goes at the end of the sentence. Like it, it doesn't matter what's going on in Latin. The verb is at the end of the sentence every time. So that's one factor. But in terms of why did God do it that way? And, and this may get into apologetics. It gets into a lot of different things. It's my personal conviction that God has always desired to draw near unto mankind, that, that humankind represents the physical imagers, the physical image of God on earth, that God created us basically to have someone else to express his love towards, you know, John mentions how God is love. That is the ultimate representation of the person of God and who God is. It's the highest ethic enumerated within scripture. My opinion and conviction on this at this point is that God is so much love. He's such a super abundance of love that God created humankind as another way to, to, lavish love upon another creation. God wanted to someone to love. So he made someone to love through the revelation of God through time to mankind. We see God revealing himself through scripture and creating a more clear picture of who he is. And we see it happening at that time in that place. And we see it ultimately culminate in the person of Jesus in that sense, we have God revealing himself fully to mankind. We have God manifesting his presence upon us, his image bearers. And, and there it is. Here we are. But that entire revelation happened in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular culture, with a particular language that was evolving even at that time. And in order to get to the root of it, well, we have to do a little bit of digging to figure that out. But what's interesting, though, is, is even with that, Christianity didn't really exist as a religion as we know it now. And you're the one that turned me on to some of those books that, that elucidate these points. Christianity was a way of life. It was something you did. It's like jujitsu isn't just something that you learn about and you go and do it. it jujitsu is this whole lifestyle. In order to do well at jujitsu, you have to have good cardio. And to have good cardio, you can't eat crap. If you eat crap, your cardio is going to suffer. And believe me, I can tell you, I've not been eating well here lately and my cardio ain't that great. Jiu-jitsu is often talked about as a lifestyle. The same thing's true with Christianity. Then it wasn't a faith with various dogmas, rituals, and things like that. That developed later. It was a way of life. It was living in love, in community with one another and expressing love to your neighbor, expressing love to your brother and sister in Christ, even expressing love and showing love to your enemy. We see that ethic in history. But we've taken that, and by we, I just mean collectively humankind, we have taken those ethics and we have taken that book that came into being some 300 years after Christ even lived, and we've completely turned that entire system on its head. So I don't think it's a matter of God doing something and making it convoluted and incredibly hard to understand. I think it's incredibly easy to understand but I think that humankind, it, it's something that's so simple it takes humankind to screw it up.
I mean, living in love for one another is a simple concept. It's very hard. It's very challenging. But whenever you distill it down into its essence, that's what Christianity is. But yeah. we've gone beyond that. We've gone yeah. way beyond that. We've made it way more convoluted than it needs to be. Right. Well, and no, I don't know if yeah. that's helpful or not. No, no. I mean, no doubt, you know, that that I would agree with everything you said. Um, but but it still doesn't answer, at least in my mind. It answers it, a facet of the why, but it doesn't get to the root it's not cause really of the why. Still why. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, why yeah. why did God do it this way? I mean, look at look at how the New Testament has been used, and we can point the finger at humans, of course. And that's the, I mean, that's that's what really about the only thing we can do is say, well, that's because of human choice and what we've done. And I get all that, but you still have so many honest Christians out there who are being hurt by a book that's supposed to free them. They're they're being hated by a book that's supposed to promote love. And then we have to start asking, well, why? Why, why was God not more clear um, on these things? And even the New Testament itself. And, and these are questions I do explore in my book. I don't want people to think I'm just asking a bunch of these questions. I'm, I'm kind of setting this up. Hopefully, hopefully people will buy my book. But <laughs> but th- this these are the types of questions that we get into of in my book of what is the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? How should we read the Bible? How should we understand the Bible? And, and hopefully to get people to think more deeply about how they are relating to Scripture, because it's easy for me to think that I'm thinking correctly about the Bible, especially if I'm really not allowing myself to be challenged. And you have yeah. to allow yourself to be challenged. We talk about challenging other people. At the end of the day, you have to be open-minded enough to allow yourself to go to those dark corners, to go to those questions that are, are there in your mind, but you don't want them to be there um, because you're afraid of what they might mean. And I can honestly say I have a stronger faith now, despite these questions, I have a stronger faith now than I've ever had because, yeah. number one, I believe that I, I, I have found what Christianity is all about. And as you pointed out, I do think it's easy, um, but I wonder why God made it so complicated to make it so easy, if that makes sense. If, if it is so easy, why have so many people missed it? And and also, even within my own hermeneutic, this isn't just my hermeneutic. I'm, I'm going to be talking about concepts that many scholars believe today, many scholars believed 200, 300 years, many scholars believe before the Enlightenment, many scholars even believed uh, within the early church fathers. I, I, this, this isn't going to be anything new, but it is going to be a competing hermeneutic, meaning that yeah. there are other hermeneutics that have been around, that are around, that scholars promote, that were around within the early church, that, that were around before the Enlightenment, after the Enlightenment. And so I think it's coming to the realization that those uncertainties are always going to exist no matter what you believe. And that's why it's so important to wherever your faith is to make sure that you have something you can really sink your teeth into. Because if not, I'm, at, I'm talking about simple questions right now. I want to be careful because I don't want to like cause our audience to go into, you know, well, what about this? And uh, what about, I don't, I don't want spin, them, yeah. yeah, like, I like, you know, but I want, I want them to know that these are questions that I think about all the time. And I, I try to be honest with that information that I have. And when people do bring that up, I don't try to say out of sight, out of mind, or just put a nice little bow on it and say, oh, well, here's how to answer that. And to me, that is the kind of the other side of the coin 
is that I, I was trained to have answers to all these questions. And so yeah. as long as you have an answer to a question, then you're good to go. But then you start spending time looking at those answers to the questions and you're like, this isn't good at all. Like, this is actually really bad. It, it works when it was supposed to work, but, you know, it's it works when you're getting paid to make it work. And it, it works when the system is working for you. But when it really becomes your faith and it's something that you're having to, to actually live with and it's no longer just about an argument, but it's about your life. And then it's no longer making sense with what you are studying. It's no longer making sense with the, with the world that is clearly observable, things that are demonstrably true that you can't deny. If, if I'm faced, and Lee, if you're faced with something that you're being told, well, hey, don't think too hard about it, okay? Just believe it. Don't think too hard about it versus this is demonstrably true. You've experienced it. You know it's right. What are you going to pick? Yeah. I mean, it, well, <laughs> and it, essentially that question is asking you or that that answer to those questions is asking you, check your brain at the door. Yeah, yeah. You know, come in here. Don't probe too hard. And it, it may, dude, it, I don't know why it makes me think about this, but the very first house that Kim and I bought it had been added on to a couple of times. It was an old house, a really old house. I mean, it was, it was in bad enough shape. It should have probably been condemned. I mean, we paid cash for this house and we didn't have a lot of money if that tells you anything. So naturally I did all the remodeling myself. And whenever we remodeled the bathroom, dude, oh my goodness, if I could, and I've said this before in jest, but there's part of me that's serious about it. If I could dig up the old man that did the add-ons to that house and bring him back to life just so I could kill him again, I would be mighty tempted to do so. Because this bathroom, <laughs> the way the walls were framed up, the only two by fours that were used were the floor plate and the top plate. <laughs> what he used for, for studs in this wall they were on two foot centers. They weren't on 16 inch centers. He used tongue and groove floor planks. Like these walls, whenever we pulled the sheetrock off of them, we just pushed them over. Like there was nothing to it. And I think about that. And I mentioned that because the answers that we are often given to some of those questions that are just superficial in nature in terms of their, their, their power to answer the question. They're a lot like those walls of the bathroom. If you look at it from the outside, well, it looks like this is a solid wall. This is a solid structure. But whenever you begin to dig into it a little bit, if you don't look too closely, well, it works. If you don't look too closely, it's solid. But the minute you start to poke around a little bit, you try to hang a, a picture in your bathroom or, or hang a mirror or whatever else, and you don't have a stud you can find, you start looking a little more closely and you start to dig into it you see that it's essentially little it's it's little better than a house of cards and that it, it's problematic. Those questions arise and they come up. And if you dig too far into it, it, it can cause trouble. It, yeah. it, it can cause you to get derailed, but it's, it is, it is difficult because I know when I was going through that process, the, the more recent process, 2.0, I guess I'm on Christianity 3.0 now, because <laughs> first it was Pentecostal and then One Cup Church of Christ, and now it's more, I, I believe it's a more Christ-centered and Bible-honoring version of, of Christianity. But in any case, whenever you're going through that process, you you do begin to question, you do begin to wonder, and sometimes I know there were times in my own detoxification and deconstruction process where... I wondered, you know, why am I still holding on to this? 
you know, how do I know this isn't just a big bill of goods? Yeah. And whenever we went through the, the science episodes a couple of years ago, we had someone that reached out and said that if they can't take Genesis as literal, that that would derail their faith. And they asked the question, well, what do you do about the miracles in the Bible? Mm -hmm. And I accept those miracles on faith, but there is, and I'll just be frank here. There is a measure of irrationality that comes to accepting those things because they do violate the laws of nature. They do violate the rules that govern the universe. And I'm not going to lie to you. I know for you, what you've just said is, is for you, the question of why did God do it this way is one that burns in your mind. And it's one I've thought about too, but it doesn't really bother me that much. One of the questions I come back around to over and over again, it, I do question the miracles sometimes. Mm -hmm. I do question the more supernatural elements of scripture. There are times where I do wonder about those. And like I said, I do accept them on faith. I do think that there is, especially in the Old Testament, there is a measure of there's a lot of literary of accommodation. accommodation. Yeah. Yeah. There is a measure of accommodation that plays a role there. But I mean, frankly, one of the reasons we had another listener that that emailed us and had something to say, they're still in Pentecostalism and they were talking about speaking in tongues. I don't know if you saw that thread in our email, but I, I responded yeah, to yeah. them. And there were some things that I saw whenever I was still Pentecostal that I can't explain today. I have no idea. And one of the most clear thing that comes to mind is we had a member of our church who had throat cancer and he had a tumor. Like you could see it. It looked like he had a golf ball in his throat and he, it had been checked. It had been biopsied. He had had imaging done on it. This was in the late eighties and he goes up to get prayed for. And whenever he got down off that stage, that knot was gone. Like it's gone full stop. He went up there with it and he came down without it. He goes and gets more imaging done. It's gone. They do blood work. It's gone. They do imaging again. It's gone. I mean, how do you explain that? There is no good explanation for that at all. Power of mind over matter, spontaneous remission, or maybe the hand of God healing him. Who knows what it was? I mean, I know what I believe it was. I believe God healed him in that moment. But even when you're a full cessationist, how do you explain that? Whenever you're not a Christian, how do you explain that? When you are a Christian, how do you explain that? There's a lot of different ways. There are times when you have atheists that go into spontaneous remission for various diseases. How do you explain those things? So for me, holding on to the miracles, it's it's not... It can be tough even when yeah. you've seen things that have happened. Well, and, and I think, and by the way, to our audience right now, we are going to get around to why we are still Christians <laughs> so far. This is, this is like why we <laughs> We're just spitballing. That's why we don't have notes. This is what happens. <laughs> why we shouldn't yeah. be Christians right now. This is this is probably going more of that line. But, um, you know, with, with the train of thought, we are going to get there eventually here in a few minutes. So just stay with us. But we want to let people know we are th- this is seriously contemplating why there are good reasons not to be. And I, yeah. you know, people look at that statement and they don't like that statement. It offends them. But I'm just being completely vulnerable. I'm being honest. And dude, it's true. We, to your point, how easy is it for Christians to project what they 
what they want to see in the world around them, thinking that it's God acting. And this is this. I, have I a, was a making a batch of brownies, and yeah. you know what? I needed two thirds of a cup of flour, and wouldn't you know it? That's what was left in the canister. Hey, praise be. Hey, hey, there you go. Right, and our, our our neighbor came over, and you know, or, or you know, our church was we we were in trouble financially, and someone just donated money to us. That was God yeah. working. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm also saying I, I want to be honest enough to say, could we not be projecting we that project onto that, that situation? Because oh, I, had sure. a, I have a friend of mine, he was a preacher, now he's an atheist. And he said, Kevin, I, re I realized the same things happened to me in my life now that I'm an atheist as they did when I was a Christian. Things come out and, you know, just pop out of nowhere and good things happen, bad things happen. I used to pray for certain things to happen, and they would happen sometimes. Sometimes they wouldn't. Now I don't pray at all because I don't believe in God. And guess what? Good things happen. Some of the things I want happen. Some of the things I want don't happen. Sometimes I get sick. Sometimes people I love get sick. Sometimes people I love die. Sometimes that you know they recover. He said, my life has not changed one bit since I stopped praying. And he said, I recognized I was projecting all of my Christian beliefs and thoughts into the life around me so that I could see what I wanted to see. It was all Christianity was a person. He said it wasn't a religion. It was a perspective. And he yeah. said, and, and it was, you know, I, if, if I wanted to see God working in my life, sure. But he said, I could have just easily said it was a leprechaun working or it was the magical <laughs> fairy that was working or it was or the it flying was spaghetti monster. And yeah, yeah it, it was anybody just working in my life. And because we were told to identify and label that as God, then we can say, well, we see God working in our lives. And so the, the projection as well, I think a lot of people are, I, I don't want to say have seen through that, but they look at that and they see it as something very flimsy. Uh, they recognize that whether they pray or whether they not pray, pray their, their life's really not that different. And this is this comes from, like I said, an atheist friend of mine, but also others that I've spoken to who are agnostic and, and even Christians who have a lot of doubts. And they wonder, like, is this not just me projecting and seeing what I want to see in life? And, and you, yeah. you know, you have the argument, well, even if God doesn't exist, isn't that a better way of living? That argument could be made. I don't think that's a really great argument for the existence well, of God, but that could be a good I argument <laughs> for, for for living a good life. Sure. You know, like if there is nothing and, and I'm happier believing, and that's even what Bart Ehrman says. You know, Bart Ehrman is, if, if you want to be challenged, go read his material. Um, conservatives cannot stand him because they want to label him as a horrible person who's out to destroy Christianity. He's not. He's a very intellectual, smart man who studied his way out of Christianity and he's very vulnerable and will explain to you why and, and talk and, you know, he's written books about it. He's also very honest about the historicity of Jesus and showing that, you know, there really was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth and, and, and all these miracles were attributed to him and people believed he was resurrected from the dead. I mean, he's, 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 in my opinion, one of the most honest scholars I've ever read, especially someone who is not, who is not a Christian, but the information he provides can be, Ironically enough, faith building, <laughs> at least it has been yeah. to me. And I've, I've conversated with Bart personally over email and we've had some conversations um, on his blog where, you know, you can pay and be part of his uh, a member where you can have discussions with him and those types of things. But I, I just say all that to say that 
instead of painting non-believers or people who've left Christianity as just heretics and people who don't love God and people who just don't care, people who just, you know, full is set in his heart, there's no God and those types of things. Let's get real and let's let's ask, well, why? Why are they no longer Christians and what's going on? Let's have these conversations and let's get real with our faith. And these superficial answers of, oh, well, you know, here's this book that answers all your questions. That's not really, that's not how faith is developed at the end of the day. I mean, it could help no. and certain books may be able to, to, to get us thinking. But if we're always trying to want to, it's like a boat, right? And if you imagine being in a boat and you have all these different holes that are in the boat and all you're trying to do is just constantly plug them, you're never going to be able to. But if you if you can can realize that maybe there is a new boat you can get in while still remaining in the water. <laughs> and, and that's that's how I that's the analogy I like to use that I'm still in the waters of Christianity, but I did have to jump ship. I did have to leave the yeah. boat that I was on because there were way too many holes. And I, yeah, I could say, oh, well, I'll fill this one real quick. And as soon as I could fill that one, another one came up and the water started filling up and I started sinking again. Some people just finally jump out, jump off, and they just leave the water altogether. Say, I'm done, and there's a, there's an island, and I'm just going to go over there. I realized I can Get still be coconuts, build a yeah, fire. There we yeah. go. Ha, have you know, Mister Wilson, and uh, you know, have my have my uh, my volleyball here. Uh, but no, it's it, it, to me. I was still I'm still able to be on those waters. I just had to realize there was a different boat that I needed to be on, for lack of better words. Yeah. And, no, I like that analogy. And, and, and one that made sense to me. So with all that said, um, I, I, I'm going to read my whole book. No, no, I'm just joking. Um, but with all that said, I did want to just give a few brief reasons, Lee, and, and pop up here too, as to why I'm still a Christian. When people ask me, when my atheistic friends ask me, these are the kind of answers I give them. Sometimes it's convincing to them. Sometimes it's not. I basically have three reasons if if we can just kind of dumb it down to three reasons, which it really could be a lot more than that. But this is really what it comes down to. Number one, as I said before, and I, and I wrote this down, I want to pull this back up because I don't want my audience to misunderstand. I don't want our audience to think that we're saying something that we're not saying. I said that if I have to give up my critical thinking, if I have to abandon critical thinking or if I have to suppress my compassion in order to keep my Christianity, I would abandon Christianity. And I stand by that. And the reason why I say that is because if I no longer have to have critical thinking and I no longer am to utilize compassion, I can literally believe anything I want to believe. <laughs> yeah. And so when someone says, you just have to trust, you just have to have faith, what you're telling me is there's no good reasons to believe in Christianity at that point. Or there are no tangible reasons. And so therefore, if I can abandon critical thinking and or if I must abandon critical thinking, if I must suppress my compassion, I can believe anything I want to at that point. Therefore, Christianity means little to nothing. Because yeah. the art the, the, the foundation that and this is this is one of the reasons why the genocide, you know, people were telling me I had to abandon critical thought. And I had to suppress my compassion and just trust in God. At that point, you're telling me I can believe anything I want to believe no matter what. <laughs> there is no good reason for me, to, therefore, to believe in Christianity. I can believe in anything because if I don't have to have critical thinking and I can, uh, I can suppress my compassion, then, 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 then what can I not believe at that point? I, I mean, what is, yeah. what, is, what is 
there's nothing that is is off limits <laughs> to to be yeah, believed. Yeah, I believe in last Thursdayism. Yeah, I believe in that. Like like anything, anything can be believed. So I believe Christianity is stronger than that, and I believe that it is more powerful than that, and I believe that I, I do not have to abandon critical thinking. Now, Lee, you pointed out there are times we have to to look at things and say this goes against the scientific method. Miracles, for example. Yeah. Jesus being resurrected clearly cannot be proven scientifically. Um, but at the same time, are there rational reasons to believe it could have happened? Enough for me to place my faith in there? Yes, I, I think so. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be. And so I think I can still think critically while realizing that there are things that take place and that have happened that are happening and that will happen that are beyond my ability to completely understand. But I still think that I can reach those conclusions through critical thoughts, not by abandoning critical thinking, but through critical thinking. And so the, the really, as I said before, the three main reasons, I have three. The first one is the historicity of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned Bart Ehrman earlier, um, even though he really claims to be more of agnostic, which I, I, we hope to get him on our show. At one point in time, I mean, he's 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 a big time guy, and I would love to get him on our program. I don't know if he would come on or not, but I hope I would love to have him on because I think he's a great guy. Um, It'd be I think a fun he, conversation. I think he's very yeah. honest. I really do. I think he's very honest with the information he has. Um, once again, that's 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 like why would God punish people who are just trying to be honest with with the information they have? Well, okay, once again, all right, sorry, I don't want to go back into that, but that, that's just a question that that burns in, my, in the back of my mind. It's always going to be there. Um, you know, it's almost like Christianity rewards the most ignorant among us at times, and I hate to say that, yeah. but, you know, it, it's just don't think about it, just believe it, and everything's good, but if you spend too much time and you end up not being convinced, then sorry, you shouldn't have studied that much. Like, why, why would God do this? Okay, but, <laughs> and, and I do engage engage in that in my book. Okay. Yeah, I, I do engage that. Okay. So I don't want you to think there are, there are no possibilities. I'm just saying that is a, that is the most difficult question personally for me that, that I struggle with. But the first reason is the historicity of Jesus. That is, if you look at the historical documentation, here's what we can know based upon our, our knowing of history. Okay. Number one, there was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who lived. His, his, the, the historicity of Jesus is there. We can look at documentation. We can look. In fact, there's there's four times as much documentation and allusions and proof that Jesus existed than the emperor at that time, Tiberius, who lived during and reigned during the, the same time period of Jesus. Four times more information. And so if we're going to say anybody existed in antiquity, then Jesus is going to be the first one we can point to to say, well, well, definitely this guy, because there's there's more written about him than any other figure. Okay, so and even even atheist will admit that point. Even agnostic, Bart Ehrman's considered perhaps the greatest historian of our time, church historian of our time, and, and he'll, he's going to say virtually ever ever scholar will say Jesus of Nazareth lived. Number two. We, we can know that Jesus died on the cross. We can know that Jesus walked around and claimed to be doing these great things called miracles. And we can know that the enemies of Jesus believed that he was performing miracles. Now, notice I didn't say that he was, but that enemies believed he was doing these things. We can also know 
historically that his followers believed that he was resurrected from the dead. And that many of them believed that they had an experience with him. Now, where Bart Ehrman and these other guys are going to come in, and, and guys and gals who are not Christians, who are scholars, they're going to say, well, just because people believed it didn't mean it actually happened. No doubt about it. I, I, I agree with that. But what I am saying is that there was enough people during that time who claimed to have experiences with Jesus that they were willing to die for their faith. And this is different than someone, let's say today, who is part of radical Islam, who says, well, I believe that I'm going to be rewarded and I believe I'm supposed to, to, to run into these, uh, to this building with this airplane. I believe I'm supposed to be doing that. The difference is the individuals we're talking about in the Bible, specifically Paul, Paul is, is, his example is powerful, is that he actually said, I saw Jesus. I had an encounter with Jesus. The disciples actually said, we saw Jesus. So these are not people who just say, well, we believe anyway. They say, we know he was resurrected to the point where they were willing to die for that faith. Now, I don't know about you, but Lee, if, if I just thought I saw Jesus and then I was being tortured, or if I actually was lying and I really didn't see Jesus, but I wanted to promote Christianity because that was just what I had invested my time in, kind of the sunk, the, the, uh, sunk loss the, fallacy. Sunk, yeah, sunk loss fallacy and say, okay, you know, we think Jesus is resurrected. We're willing to teach this and preach this. The second I'm being tortured, I'd say, guys, wait a minute. I actually didn't see Jesus. I actually didn't. <laughs> you know, it was all made up. None of them ever, ever denied that they saw Jesus. There's not any account of that. And we know that at least in addition to the apostles, least addition to the women who saw him, at least in addition to the 500 people that Paul, when he wrote to Corinth in 1 Corinthians, said they're still living, most of which are still living, a lot of them died for their faith or they were persecuted, and we never read in any antagonistic writings, in any antagonistic writings, that any of them, and when I say antagonistic, those who were against Christianity, that anyone ended up recanting, saying, no, they didn't really see Jesus. We don't read of that, the ones who, who claimed that they did. So here's what we know. We know Jesus existed. We know that people believed he performed miracles. We know that he taught life-changing messages, <laughs> clearly, because here we are 2,000 years later on a different continent talking about it. Still we, talking about him, yeah. We, we know that he was crucified, and we know that his—by the way, I didn't add this in there because, I mean, this in and of itself could be a, a whole lesson or a whole podcast, but we know that the tomb was found empty. Now, here were the arguments of, of individuals during that time who didn't believe Jesus was resurrected. Do you know what the argument was? Someone stole his body. Yeah. And the main argument was the disciples stole his body, which once again, that doesn't add up. If the disciples stole his body, that means they knew he wasn't actually resurrected, which means they died for something they knew was not true. Someone's going to capitulate. Somebody, yeah. somebody, right? I mean, they all were not that crazy. And even if you say, well, some of them were, there were that many people who saw Jesus, and yet uh, you're going to say that all of them collaborated together? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense, and that they all lied, and that they were all willing to die for that, that Paul had no reason to change. You know, people have tried to say, oh, well, maybe Paul was just schizo. Maybe, maybe, you know, Paul just felt guilty for what he did. He was on his way to lock up more Christians, to get permission to continue to persecute, to continue to, 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 to persecute the church. 
he didn't he, he thought he was doing the right thing something changed so to me historicity the historicity of Jesus is powerful it, it, it is so powerful to me it leads me to say that you know what I, I don't think it's irrational to say that I can have faith in the greatest man who's ever lived now yeah. second of all and Lee this is what I've talked to you even more so than that argument. Now, I think from from more of like an apologetics perspective, I think that resonates with some people. But on even a greater scale, someone asked actually asked me, Kevin, what would it take for you not to believe in God? A friend of mine asked me this. What would it take for you not to believe in God? And I had to think about that. I think that's a fair question. And for me to say, oh, there's nothing. No, no, I think we have to be honest and say, well, what, what would it take? It would take someone proving that there is no such thing as objective love. If you could prove to me love is not an objective concept, then I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you could convince me there's no God. Because what we we have talked about that before, and I don't want to cut you off here, but I'm going to ask you: whenever you say love is an objective concept. What do you mean whenever you say objective concept? Okay. What does that mean? What what's yeah. the principle, the undergirding idea so, behind that? And, and I and I do talk about this a lot in my book. I call this attitudinal truths. When you look at the idea of love, what is love? Well, we can say First John four eight, God is love. Okay, that's great. But what does that mean? What what does it mean? God is love. Okay, if God is the embodiment of love, what does that mean? If God is love, what does that mean? Well, that means that there has to be some sort of objective gauge to measure if something is loving or if something is not loving. Otherwise, love just, once again, would mean nothing. So there has to be an objective standard of what love looks like. And that's defined throughout the gospel accounts through the life of Jesus. So Jesus even taught, what is the greatest command? Love God, love other people. Once again, though, that doesn't tell us what love is. Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's characteristically defined. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love doesn't seek its own interest, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout the New Testament, love is defined constantly and consistently. It's actually consistent. And that's one thing I like about love. It's it's consistently defined throughout the New Testament characteristically. But more importantly than that, Jesus said that love treats another the way you want to be treated and that love does no harm to its neighbor. If that is the meaning of love, then that is something that we would say is objectively right. It's it's it is yeah. an object it is an objective truth. It's an ad, what I call an attitudinal truth. It may manifest itself differently. And one of the examples I give in my book is the example when Jesus washes feet in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, "I've washed feet. You are to wash feet, just as I've washed your feet." Jesus wasn't teaching a behavioral truth of washing feet. He was teaching an attitudinal truth of this is what love looks like. And so my my belief, my hermeneutic is I have a Christocentric hermeneutic, which leads to what I believe are attitudinal truths. And that's what we need to mimic throughout uh, our time in whatever situation or time period we live in. That's what we need to be mimicking are those attitudinal truths. They're universal they, they always are right. They never change. Now, the way, once again, the way they manifest themselves may change. We don't wash feet today in America to show love. We may give someone a ride to church, but in that sense, we're still washing their feet. We're still serving one another. It was the attitude behind that act that Jesus was concerned with, not the act itself. And the so, undergirding driver of that behavior. Yeah. Yes. So with that said, I believe that Jesus lays forth 
an objective understanding of what love looks like, and the Bible claims that God is love. So in order for me to not, to, I, I, in order, if, if I were going to be an atheist or even an agnostic, I would have to believe that there is no such thing as objective love. As long as I believe that there is objective love, and this, this isn't exactly the same thing as saying uh, moral absolutes. Now, I do think that we could talk about that a little bit, but this goes a little bit beyond that, in my opinion, because even getting into moral absolutes, that can get a little sticky um, from time to time, especially when you look at the Bible, right? Because the Bible's morals change all throughout, <laughs> which is another problem, right? But when you look at the, the these attitudinal truths and say, well, love, this is, how, this is what love's supposed to be like. Love looks out not for itself, but love treats others the way I want to be treated. Love does no harm to a neighbor. If that's true, then the then then Jesus is the only reason why we can point and say definitively, this is what love is, because God is claiming to be love. God is saying, this is what, this, I am love, and this is what love looks like. And that's manifested and revealed through Jesus Christ. So, as long as I believe in objective and in an objective standard of love, I'm not even gonna say right and wrong because, like I said, that can get tricky. An objective standard of love, which is the uh, ultimate, ultimate universal truth, is love. If if that's the case, then I have to point to somebody or something and say this is why I believe. And Jesus is obviously the clearest manifestation of that. He, he and when you when you when you tack that on. When you tack that on <laughs> to the historicity of Jesus, to me it makes sense. It, it, it's it's a very strong argument. It persuade it persuades me enough to to remain a Christian. Do you want to comment on any of that? Well, I I mean my reasons for staying Christian and remaining within the faith. You just enumerated a facet of two of those. So I really don't have anything to add yet. So you, you've stated that the first reason is because of the historicity of Jesus, the historical Jesus. Yeah. The second reason, and with the historical Jesus, it's not that much of a stretch to believe what's written about him. And then the second reason would be objective attitud attitudinal love. What would the third yeah. reason be? Yeah, so the third reason after those two, and the third reason is it can be close to the second, and that is just, and I admit this is more of a weaker argument, okay? So this is going to be more of a supplemental to the first two, because I already addressed how we can project, you know, we, we can take we can take our life and we can project it and say, okay, well, this is, we, we can project God onto our lives, if you will. But the third is more of the X, X, experience, experiential um, argument, I guess, that you can you can say that I feel like I have experienced God and that I see God in people and that I see the love of God. I see creation. I see manifestations of a creator of something greater than this life. Ultimately, my third reason is this. It gives me purpose. It gives me yeah. purpose. And I don't. I think that that argument in and of itself really wouldn't hold much water because anybody could could find purpose in a lot of different things. But I, yeah, it's, I, a, I it's a subjective argument. I, it's, but it's based and I on supplement your experience. that with the first two, right? Yeah. And, and I supplement yeah. that with the first two because I have looked at other world religions, and nothing, absolutely nothing, parallels Christianity. It doesn't. 
And people say, oh, you know, you're just biased. Well, sure, maybe I am, but I don't see anything paralleling Christianity. Um, you know, yeah. and it's not like, yeah, sure, there's there's countless religions out there, but there are no religions that have the type of historicity that Christianity does to the extent Christianity does. And also, furthermore, now that I understand the Bible the way I understand it, I believe the whole Bible is a polemic to the rest of religion. And it yeah. shows that all these other religions are about you giving to your God. They're all about what you can bring to your God. And unfortunately, some Christians still think that's what Christianity is about. God reverses that and says, no, 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 this Christianity is about what I'm going to bring to you, what I'm going to give to you. And I, a perfect love cast out fear. So it actually, I believe, is truly the answer to so many problems that we are dealing with and have dealt with in this world. Because if you have a perfect faith that cast out fear, 1 John 4, 17 through 19, if you realize that you are saved not on your own merit, but on grace, that is, is a wonderful life. And to know that my purpose in life is to treat others the way I want to be treated and to, to do no harm to my neighbor, but to do them good, then that makes sense no matter if you are a Christian or if you're not a Christian. That is something that is appealing to everybody. Why is that appealing to everybody? And this is, this is, this is, you know, what I couldn't get around in, in trying to, I won't say talk myself out of being a Christian, but trying to put forth the best arguments in my own mind. If everyone, even including non-Christians, want to be treated in, in, a, in a right way, if, if they don't want people to harm them, why? There has to be something greater. There has to be a greater purpose behind all of that. So my answer is it's God. But more specifically, it's Jesus, because Jesus, I believe, is God, was God manifested in the flesh while he was on earth and showed us what God is all about, who God is all about, the, the proper understanding of God. And so I think that through that lens, everything makes sense. Now, with all that said, I'm going to go back to why I think that for me, the hardest question to get around is, well, why then did God still make it pretty complicated for me to reach those points and for other people to reach those yeah. points? And why is it taking me a book to write after years of study to hopefully point people toward that? I don't know. And but reading I 300 say, books to boot. But, but what I will say is, is that is where it led me. And now that I'm there, it's going to be hard to convince me otherwise. You would have to really try to discredit the historicity of Jesus, um, which, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I, being the best scholars can't do that. They're, they're everything that they have studied affirms the historicity of Jesus. Now I want to be fair to don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I'm not saying that atheistic scholars believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They don't obviously. Well, he was a man. He lived in Galilee. Yes. He preached for a while. He existed as a human being, but he his claims of divinity. Messages. Yeah. Yeah. He, he yeah. was he his his tomb was found empty. His followers claimed he was resurrected and that they saw him and they were willing to die for that. And so much so that look at the religion it started. Look at how many people were willing to to be faithful to that, believing they saw Jesus, and look at the life changing messages. So, you know, it's 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 like I said, all of those things together are really how I summarize why I am still a Christian. 
and why it still makes sense to me is the historicity of Jesus, the ob- objective st- objective standard of love that is defined and manifested through Jesus Christ, and that is constantly alluded to throughout the scriptures in these attitudinal characteristical truths, and then finally the the idea of purpose, the idea that Jesus taught us how to live so much so that it's really the only life that gives us purpose. Now, people will say, well, you can treat others the way you want to be treated without being a Christian. You you can do no harm to your neighbor and help people without being a Christian. Absolutely. But why? <laughs> and, and, and I'm not saying that if you're not a Christian, you don't have morals, but I'm saying you can't point to a reason as to why as humans do we all have that embedded in us? I don't know of a single person who says, no, I, I don't want to be treated. I don't want to be treated right. I, I want someone to oppress me. I want somebody to abuse me. I want somebody to just treat me horribly. I don't care. I, I don't know anybody. Why? Because we all, I believe, if as a Christian, have been made in the image of God. And so we bear that stamp. And so once again, that's more of an exper- experiential argument, I know. But I do believe it holds water when you put those all those arguments together. So no, and that's, would, that's why would, I'm still a Christian. Well, I would agree with you on that. And there's going to be a lot of overlap between what you said and the reasons you enumerated and the reasons why I have remained a Christian as well. There's, there's some nuance and there's some little differences to it, but I think you put it very, very well. And the first one <laughs> that, that I would touch on would be the, the testimony aspect of Christianity, what you spent, you know, about, you know, several minutes discussing how you have all of these people that, that followed Jesus, that followed this Christian ideology, even in the face of persecution, in the face of torture, in the face of death, you have people whose children are being killed. You have people whose spouses are being killed. You have people who are being drawn and quartered. They're being pulled apart by animals. They're being, you know, soaked in pitch and impaled and lit on fire in Nero's garden. You have people that are being torn apart by wild animals in the Colosseum for the entertainment of others. There are people who are witnessing their family members die, and they remain ascribed to that philosophy. Now, there are some that would say that fear was a factor in them holding on to their Christian ideology. In other words, they may have had it in their mind. At least this is an argument that I use whenever I was an atheist. Whenever I would hear someone like you say, oh, well, you know, there are people that wouldn't deny their testimony even in the face of certain death and, and destruction and dismemberment. I would say, well, of course they wouldn't. If they did, they'd go to hell and they didn't want to be tortured forever and ever and ever. At least now they're just being tortured for a little while. And, you know, that then they can go on to heaven to their reward in their own minds. But if they're, you know, being tortured for a little while, it sure beats being tortured for all eternity. The one problem with that is, is those earliest Christian martyrs didn't have a conception of eternal conscious torment like we talked about in some previous episodes that's something that came about much much later in theology so that wasn't the factor well and you said about people i'm sorry go ahead well i was just going to say in the in the earliest christians uh not the early not the early church fathers because they came later but talking about paul and the disciples they they would have known obviously that jesus was not resurrected if they either stole their stole the body yeah. Or, or B, 
if they actually would have not seen Jesus because they didn't all see Jesus at one time. You know, some people have tried to yeah. argue that this was some sort of mass um, uh, of trying to think of the word um, to look for. It was like a, a mass illusion, almost like hysteria that that all of them at one time kind of you know thought that they had this vision. And a lot of psychologists have gone through and studied those theories and even psychologists and psychiatrists who are not Christians to show that that just doesn't make any sense. You couldn't get that many different people in that many different situations to come up with the belief that they experienced and saw Jesus after he was resurrected. You know, maybe one person, maybe even two or three, but you're dealing with too many different people over a span of, 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 you know, different situations. You know, you, you have some on the road to Emmaus who saw Jesus. You had the disciples who saw him. You had the, you know, oh, well, the tomb was empty. I mean, you, you, you had, um, the, the 500 brethren who saw Jesus at the brothers and sisters in Christ that Paul alludes to who saw Jesus. So you had too many people. And so that, that to me, why is why I think that that is such a powerful argument is because well, and it's the same for me, brother. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on because you look at the Watergate scandal, for example, and there's some theologian, I can't remember who it is that made this point, you know, with Watergate, you have what, seven, eight people or 12 people, maybe fewer than 20 that were involved with that. You've got 20 or fewer. Yeah. And they couldn't keep it secret. Yeah. I mean, look at some of the secret stuff that leaks. Look at some of the other scandals that have come out. Look at the things that people have tried to keep secret and they can't. And that's because humans suck at keeping secrets. We are terrible in, in a general sense of, of keeping things like that to ourselves. And if you cast a wide enough net and you have enough people in that net that meet those requirements, someone's going to spill the beans. And like yeah. you said, the fact that nobody did, the fact that it, that people remained ideologically pure, even in the face of all the torture that they faced, mm -hmm. these people that would have been direct eyewitnesses to the Christ. Like you said, you don't read about this in any of those antagonistic writings. It just isn't there. It's and the opposite. Me, that's, it's the opposite. In, in fact, in many of the, and, and once again, I don't, I mean, we're kind of getting off here a little bit. I mean, this is part of it, but because, because this is stuff we could talk about for hours. I could talk about hours and hours and hours because I, yeah. I wanted to, if I'm going to be a Christian, you know, I wanted to make sure I knew why, but there are a lot of writings of those, those antagonistic writings, especially many of the elitist Jews who wrote the Jewish Talmud. And even before, I mean, you even have a lot of Josephus writings or just writings of Josephus. And he is making mention of how, and some of these, I, you know, some people have questioned some of this, but there is still enough material there to, to demonstrate that there were people who believed that, or, or will admit that Jesus was doing things that couldn't be explained. And, and that their writings about Jesus, sometimes they would even talk about, you know, well, all these, all these people saw Jesus do these, these, you know, miracles. And, you know, even when you look at the text itself, like in Acts, for example, we read of Simon the Sorcerer, and he believed, you know, that what even the apostles were doing, it was bona fide. These, this is something that even this great trickster could not explain. And, you know, even those who rejected what Jesus was doing, they weren't doing so on the basis that they were saying he really wasn't working these miracles, but simply they were trying to attribute 
his miraculous ability to Satan or to demonic forces. So never do yeah. you realize, you know, never do you read of anybody saying, oh, well, this has been exposed or, you know, this this is you know, this didn't really happen or, or this was all just a bunch of, of fraudulent behavior. You don't read that. Instead, even the those who were the enemies of Jesus, those who were the enemies of Christianity, were willing to talk about the great wonders that Jesus did, which is which is to and, me very interesting. Well, that's incredibly interesting. If the enemies, if if the enemies of your movement are I, I guess validating your movement by saying, yeah, some of this stuff that's happening. Yeah. We saw some of this happen and we don't really know what to make of it. All these people are claiming the same thing. They're all telling the same story yeah. that speaks to it. And <laughs> and to me, that's like you, that's powerful evidence. I, I believe that that is pretty powerful. Um, you talked about the historicity of Jesus. I, I believe that too. I can't really add anything to it that you haven't already, but for me, the, the other, I guess, more secondary reasons that are more subjective the first one for me would be the order of first cause, what St. Thomas Aquinas called the order of first cause, that within everything there is ultimately a first cause. And in my study of science and in going through science, like for myself, I fully accept without any hesitation that this world that we live in is somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 billion years old, give or take a few million years. I believe that this universe we live in is somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 and a half billion years old, give or take a few hundred million years on in either direction. I believe that there was a big bang that brought all this into existence. I believe that there has been cosmological evolution that has led to our solar system forming the way it has and earth forming the way that it has. I believe that biological evolution explains the reality by which humankind has ascended to where we are now in terms of the natural order. I believe that I believe all of that, what science has discovered and what science teaches, I believe all of that is true. I, I believe all of that. I also believe that God is ultimately the author that spun all of that into motion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that John Lennox, who is a, an Irish mathematician, he talks about this. He's also a physicist. He's, he's a brilliant man. If you've never heard of John Lennox, look him up. He's got amazing stuff to write about. And he said some amazing things. It's he, he makes some really, really good arguments. But one of the things, though, and, and this is, I will admit, is a matter of faith, is what a lot of apologists talk about is the idea of irre irreducible complexity. And one of the examples you may remember that, that you may have heard before is like the eye. If mm -hmm. any single component of the eye isn't in place, well, then the eye won't develop the way it can. The eye cannot function if one of its parts is taken out of the equation. You have the refraction of the cornea that refracts light appropriately through the pupil, through the lens, which is a biconcave disc that then, or biconvex disc that then refracts light onto the retina. And then the retina, the central points made up of all these millions of tiny receptors called rods and cones. And the light creates an energy cascade that causes a depolarization wave through the ganglion cells into the optic nerve that then processes through the optic chiasm, through the thalamus, and then through the optic radiations to the occipital lobe and blah, 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 blah. You take away any one of those components you don't see. And so people will say, well, because of irreducible complexity, that's a that's a point that points to intelligent design. And I believe that. And, and I see the argument there. The issue that you get into though, is, is that in terms of evolution, evolution is a tinkerer. 
Yeah. What evolution does is, is it takes little things here and it will repurpose them for something else over here. One of the things that's amazing that you look at is people that live in abject poverty. They're able to adapt and they're able to purpose and repurpose and re-repurpose various things for a, for a variety of different functions. One example that we see of this in terms of evolution, there's a bacterium and I, I can't remember which bacteria it is. But a lot of bacteria will use tails called flagella to propel themselves. And so another explanation for irreducible complexity is, is that, well, with these flagella, you know, the genes that code that tell the flagella to form these genes with without a single if, if any one of those components of that propeller system, that flagella, that flagellate tail is is gone or absent, well, then the flagella doesn't form. It can't function. The bacteria dies. The issue with that is, is if you take a look at the genetic material that gives rise to the flagella, there are other bacteria where that same genetic code gets repurposed into a, a proboscis, for example, or, or proboscis. I think that's how it's pronounced. And what that proboscis is, is it's, it's like the, the tongue of a hummingbird that, that, eats, you know, the, the nectar out of the hummingbird feeder. Anyway, the same genetic code that can code for the flagella, you take a couple of little changes to it. It's like Lego bricks. You change up the Legos. It's still the same Legos. It's still the same genes, but they'll manifest themselves in a different way. So while the idea of irreducible complexity doesn't really hold water in terms of individual functional, physiological, or genetic parts, in a global sense, that explanation, I find it really compelling for the universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me. And, and John Lennox, he goes into the mathematics behind it, some of the physics behind it and the statistics behind it. That's why I mentioned him earlier. In order for all of that to have happened, all of this to, adha- to have happened at, within blind random chance, it's practically impossible. There has to be an order of first cause that spun everything up as it is and as it exists now that started that process. I believe that God is the best explanation. There are people that are going to say, well, that's just a God of the gaps explanation with extra steps or maybe with fewer steps. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the case. That explanation works for me. It has to. I'm not an astrophysicist, but I know enough about it to know how tricky that crap can be. And to <laughs> me, it makes sense. But but for me, that order of first cause, it has to be something. If whatever that something is, maybe it's, you know, like the crazy hair guy on the history channel. Maybe it was aliens. Who knows? But where do they come from? And then that gets, of course, into the philosophical question. Well, then where did God come from? Yeah. And, that and, and then we have we have the, the convenient answer. Oh, God's always been there, you know. So that's, He's always been that's, there. Uh, he just I, happens to be a dude. And, and, I, and, I, and I like that argument. It is a bit of a cop-out. I tell my atheistic friends because they're like, well, where did God come from? Oh, God's always been there. Well, could, it, could not some alien already always be there? No, because he's not eternal. Only God's eternal. And those are a lot of circular philosophical arguments anyway, as I digress. Well, but, but it is, though. And, and the thing is, though, is that I'm okay with saying, oh, maybe it was an alien. Maybe yeah. that is where we came from. I mean, it's possible. Do I know? No, I don't. Yeah. But based on what I do know, I have no problem ascribing that to God. And maybe that's intellectually dishonest. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't, I don't really care because it works for me. 
Yeah, you know? I don't. I don't think it is uh, intellectually dishonest. In fact, going going back to the idea of faith, I talked about at the beginning, where we have more of a westernized understanding of faith today because we're in the West, uh, and that's that's the idea. I, the ideas we've been influenced by, and that's what we've been taught is everything, especially after the Enlightenment period. Everything was about certainty, and everything's about being logical. Not that I don't think we shouldn't be logical. I mean, this whole podcast, we're talking about the importance of, of not giving up your intellectual honesty. And not that I don't think we shouldn't look for answers. But in the East, and even to this day, this hasn't changed. The way they understand the concept of faith is very different than the way we understand faith. And so when Jesus talked about faith, <clears throat> when the earliest Christians wrote about faith, how did they understand it, and how would they have understood it, and how should we understand it today? So while while you gave some reasons why you believe, while I gave reasons why I believe, there is still uncertainty and doubt. Yeah. And that uncertainty and doubt is actually not the antithesis of faith, but it it's is a fundamental part component of, of it. Yes. Absolutely. And so this is where I realized I could still be intellectually honest and give my reasons for believing while still accepting that there are a lot of uncertainties, one of which is why did God communicate this way? Man, I don't know, and I'm not going to know. And that was one of the answers I found is that we don't always have the answers. But going back to looking at what is demonstrably true in my life, is it easier for me to abandon any form of Christianity and live in either an uh, atheistic mindset or even an agnostic mindset with the same doubts, with the same uncertainties? Because I talk to my atheistic friends all the time. They have just as many questions as I do. They have just as many doubts as I do, but it is on different things. It's on different issues. So I realized that there's no there's no religion or there's and there's no non-religion that I could ever be a part of that is going to give me what I do not have um, or, or, yeah. or is going to give me what I do not currently have. There, there's nothing that is going to ever fill that gap. So I can't look at Christianity and say, oh, well, I'm not going to be a Christian because it doesn't fill that gap. Well, being an atheist certainly doesn't answer all those questions. Being an agnostic doesn't. Being a, a Muslim doesn't. Being a Jew doesn't. Being a, a Hindu doesn't. Because in all of those religions, there remains, or non-religions even, there remains uncertainties, there remains questions, and there remains doubt. And so what I realized is that part of faith is accepting that I'm not going to know everything. There comes a point where, yes, I can be intellectually honest, and I can try to be logical, and I can do the best I can, but at the end of the day, eventually we have to just decide what do we believe and why do we believe it, and make sure you have valid reasons and have thoughtful reasons for why you believe what you believe. And, and, and after I did a survey of these different world religions, and I looked at my own questions, I realized that for me, Christianity still makes the most sense. Now, as I said earlier, I had to get out of the boat that I was on, and I had to get into a different boat that didn't have as many holes in it. 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't times when those waves come and I still just have no idea how to address certain situations, how to talk about certain topics. I don't know. There's a lot of questions that I don't know. And, and I'm not well, going to act like I do. Well, I think that the key to that is having enough humility to recognize that there are some questions that may never be answered. Yeah. But also to have enough humility to understand that no matter what belief system that I choose to ascribe to, I have to have a philosophy. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny because that's really the the last reason that I'll discuss why I've remained a Christian. And it, and it dovetails in with what you said before about the overarching meta narrative of love that we see within scripture. But the irony is, is that the godless atheistic philosopher Ayn Rand was the one who really kind of gave me the tools to be able to, to parse out this idea of having a philosophy. Whenever I was in chiropractic school, we, we took some philosophy classes and we talked about one of the essays that Ayn Rand wrote called Philosophy, Who Needs It? It was from a speech that she gave to the cadets at, I think, West Point. I may be getting that wrong at their graduation, but one of the things that she said, and, and this, this hit me hard, and it was just like, holy smoke, she's exactly right. No matter who you are, whether you think about it and you have a cognitive awareness of it, or whether you're just coasting through life without ever giving it a second thought, no matter what, you have to have a philosophy. Everybody has one. Whether you have thought about it and thought through it and use critical <laughs> thinking and reasoning to think through different concepts and constructs that you've cleaned up in one sense and you've rejected on another hand, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, whether you've done the hard work to develop it into something cogent and coherent or whether you haven't, whether your philosophy is that, or if it's just an unfettered and disorganized collection of of idioms and figures of speech and bumper stickers and concepts that you've cobbled together. She called it a mongrel philosophy that really has no basis, that really has no foundation. Whether or not you think about it, you have to have one and you do have one. Yeah. So in on Reddit, I'm, I'm active on Reddit. I have, I'm, I'm not anonymous. Most people on Reddit are anonymous. I'm not anonymous on Reddit. I'm there under the EFPG podcast and I frequent different subreddits <laughs> on there. And I've, I've gotten to a discussion with somebody a while back and I need to look at that thread. I'm really trying to be like you and limit my social media time, but I need to get back on that thread because this person was describing how Christianity is nothing but a bunch of lies and it's based, it's not based on reason. It's not based on this at all. And, and we kept talking past each other, but one of the things I was trying to communicate is what you said just a few moments ago. If you take Christianity, if you take the Bible and you do what Thomas Jefferson did and you just remove all the supernatural elements from it and you write the Jeffersonian Bible, where he took the life of Jesus and removed all the supernatural stuff and condensed it down to the sayings and the teachings of Jesus. If you do that with Christianity and let's say for the sake of argument, you can't buy into the supernatural stuff that's in the Bible. And I'll admit, sometimes I have a problem with that. I've chosen to accept it, but there are times where I still wonder about it. There are times where I still, you know, wonder, did that really happen? Well, and, and I, I mean, really, I still struggle I think, with that sometimes. And I think those are good, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but for those listening, 
I think those are good questions because I, I do delve into this in one of my cha- in one of the chapters in my new book under a lit- under a chapter heading called literary accommodation, where I talk about we have to respect the literary context, and I go into yeah. detail about how ancient biographies were written, and that there, I, I don't get too deep into this particular aspect of it because I mean I just tried the book is surveying a lot of different ways the Bible accommodates so that we can have just a better understanding and have a better framework of scripture. But the problem with trying to force Christianity into this box or the beliefs of Christianity, we've, we've added all of these different tangents. You've got to, are these different you know lists of beliefs and you have to believe this, you, you have believe to believe this, this. you this, have to believe in a literal this, creation. You this. have to believe that everything in the old Testament was history. You, you have to believe that all the miracles r- recorded in scripture happened just as they were written. But when you actually look at the context and you look at the literary context, you realize, wait a minute, this isn't always the, this didn't mean that it actually happened. It may not be really interested in detailing chronological history or even fact, but it's just telling a deeper truth and it's using this story to do so. And so we can even get so entangled in trying to you know, vote who's in or who's out by if you believe in every single miracle and it literally took place this way versus what did the miracle represent? What was the point in which that writer, what were they trying to make? And when we look at the the literary devices used among the ancient writers, we start to, to read those biographies, not in the way we would have written and read biographies or read and writ, write or read biographies today, but how they would have written and understood the biographies 2000 years ago. And that's why I think reading the Bible through its ancient context and worldviews opens up a whole new world. But anyway, I, I just wanted to bring out the point that for oh, those yeah. who are doubting, there are a lot of Christians out there who are Christians, who I believe who are Christians who do not believe in oh, well, the, the well. Well, I was going to say who who do not believe in many of the miracles recorded in the gospel accounts, not because they're not willing to say miracles couldn't happen. I mean, after all, if we believe in a supreme being, you know, creator, then by definition, I mean, we're we're believing in supernatural stuff. But who who has who have looked and studied this through its context, literary context, and said, well, that's really not the point that the writer was trying to make, and this probably really didn't happen the way in which it's written, but here's the point that was trying to be made. And they do so by comparing it to other ancient literature. And so they're not taking it out of context. We were, we would be the ones taking it out of context by trying to press this wooden literalism and saying you have to understand it this way or else. We would actually be the ones modernizing the Bible and adding to and projecting what we want the Bible to say instead of taking the Bible within its original context. But anyway, I, I just wanted to make that side point. No, I think that's a good point to make. And I mean, and I struggle with that still. Yeah. Because, and a lot of that has to do with my upbringing. It has to do with my conditioning. Because no matter what, I mean, deep down, we all have a measure of that conditioning that we hang on to that's hard to get past. It is just so ingrained within our subconscious. It's it's a part of all, who we are. It's a part of mm-hmm. our identity. And that literal perspective on that, yeah, I wrestle with that sometimes. Well, but like I was saying before, Whenever you condense the essence of scripture into a philosophy, is it a philosophy worth having? Is it a philosophy that increases the good in the world, that increases the good in you as a person, that increases the good in your life? 
And you said it earlier, whenever my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, she had some complications that arose from COVID. She was 82. She had a good long life. She was an amazing Christian woman. She better exemplified the love of Jesus than anyone else. Yeah. There was a lot of harm that came at the hands of various people on that side of the family under the guise of faith. That side of the family was much more strict in terms of holiness codes and and living that that fundamentalist evangelical lifestyle than what my family was. And of all 16 of the grandkids on that side of the family, I'm the second oldest of them. There are maybe two that still ascribe to any type of faith whatsoever, not including me. Wow. And a lot of a lot of them left that behind. Whenever she passed away, I was asked to speak at her funeral. And knowing that my cousins are there and knowing that I don't want to alienate them, I'm wondering, how do I speak to this? How do I speak to my grandmother's life and the reality of what her life was as a person of faith? Without alienating anybody else, because dude, you know it as well as I do. There are a lot of preachers that seize the opportunity of a funeral. I've got a captive audience now. I'm going to tell them all the way it is. I'm going to tell them how the cow ate the cabbage. They're going to hear this sermon because it may be the only time they get to hear it. So here we go. Full bore. Let's get after it. Pedal to the metal. I didn't want to do that. I don't want to turn them off to it. So I spoke of my grandmother's faith in terms of philosophy, because like you said earlier, it doesn't matter who you are or whether you believe that God is real or whether you believe God is just a made up fairy tale meant to either control the masses or to assuage the guilty consciences of those who have sinned egregiously in their own lives. No matter what your philosophy is, no matter what your worldview is, if you take what Jesus taught in its core essence, does that make the world a better place? Does it make it a worse place? Does it make your community a better place? Does it make it a worse place? Does it make your family better and more cohesive and kinder and more peaceful? Does it bring about order? Does it bring about chaos in your own life? Does it make your life better or does it make it worse? Yeah. How can we say that holding love, which like you said, and you put it beautifully, We know objectively what love is. We know instinctively what love is. We know instinctively what love isn't in all of its manifestations. How can that make the world a worse place? How does it make my life worse to live according to the philosophy that Jesus lived? So take religion out of it. Take dogma out of it. Take ritual out of it. Who cares about baptism or communion or singing songs or having a building? How many songs are we going to have? Can men teach or can women teach? Let's eliminate all those doctrinal questions and get to the core of it. Does that soup, does that philosophy of love supersede everything else? Is it better and more powerful than anything else you can find out there? I can't think of anything that can make a, the world a better place than if we all Everybody collectively lived what Jesus taught. Yeah. For me, that is the most powerful testimony. That's the most powerful reason why I remain a Christian, because as a philosophy, I haven't found another one that's better. I can't, mm-hmm. I haven't. And I don't yeah, know that I will. Well, absolutely. And at this point, my inner critic is, is saying, well, yeah, but there were people before Jesus 
who taught a lot of similar ideas of love. Of course there were. Absolutely there were. And, 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 and that's true. But here's the difference, at least in my mind, and this is the argument or the reason that I give when I'm talking to to my friends who are not Christians or who no, who are no longer identify as Christians. Jesus gave a reason behind it. <laughs> and while everyone else has have, could identify it and everyone else could recognize it, Jesus gave a reason for it. There, there, there's a purpose behind it. And you know, that that to me actually strengthens the argument that that the fact that people have have been able to recognize the love that 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 is in all of us that we should be showing one another. Jesus finally was able to put a name to it and give a reason behind it. And so to me that that is what is so powerful about that. Well, absolutely, that we are God's image bearers, that we're made in his image is one of those reasons. But we love because we are loved. We love because he first loved us. As God's image bearers, that love is instilled within us unless unless we're a psychopath or a sociopath, and we just don't have that capacity for empathy. We don't have that capacity for love instilled within us. It's it's a part of our makeup. It's it's a core part of our being, and the message of Christianity, the intention in which, like we've said, it's been abused and 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 misappropriated throughout the generations. But that core message, that identifying characteristic of love, is what Jesus, in my mind, came to bring to the surface mm-hmm. and bring back to the forefront. Yeah. Forget about the ties of Minton, Annis, and Cumin. Let's look at the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faith and love. That's what it all boils down to. And for me, that high ethic of love, the historical Jesus, the order of first cause, the power of the testimony of the witnesses and their unyieldingness with that message those are the reasons why I remain a Christian. It's not because I've sacrificed my brain at, at the altar of blind superstition. It's not because I have a weak mind and need the, the panacea that, that Christianity brings. And I need that, that balm for the uninformed. It, it's not that at all. Yeah, My critical yeah. thinking allows me to parse that data. It makes sense to me. And part of that, like you said, it is experiential. Part of it is, if we're going to admit it, part of it's blind. I mean, there's enough information to get us to a point, but eventually we all have to take that leap of faith and make yeah. that choice. What is our philosophy going to be? What are we going to believe? What are we going to espouse? What are we going to promote? Yeah, we and all then, have to connect a dot to something. Yeah. Then the question is, Why? Why do I believe that? Why do I think that? And that's really what we've talked about in this episode. And I really thought we were going to be shorter tonight, but we weren't. We talked for almost two hours, but I know you're probably getting ready to wrap this up. So what do you want to close with? Because like I said, this is all unscripted. There are no notes here. I'll I'll close with this. If you want me to speak for... A short period of time. I need. I need time to prepare, and I need notes. Uh, if, you, if, if I if I can speak as long as I want to, just let me go, and I don't have to have to have any preparation. You know, that's how we both are. Um, but I just that's hope we roll, been, baby. I just hope this has been beneficial to our audience. And I, I, we're, we've tried to be vulnerable. We've tried to be honest. 
We've tried to give explanations for why some people are no longer Christians that I think are valid. Now, do I hope and pray that one day that they can find Jesus again? Yes, I do. But at the end of the day, each person has to make that decision for themselves. And we all have to to meet God where we're at with our understanding. We can't choose for other people. We can't have, pro, you know, we, we can't. We, we can't teach proxy faith where, oh, if I just have enough faith, maybe a person I love will have the same kind of faith I have. The whole point of faith, yes, it is collective. As Christians, we all have a, the, the same collective faith uh, idea in God and Jesus, but it is also individualistic. You can't have a collective faith without everyone within that collective faith having their own individualistic faith. And so each person has to make their own decisions for themselves. But the biggest point or the main point that I hope you get out of this, if you're listening, is don't think that in order to be a Christian, you have to have all the answers and that you have to find a way to no longer have doubt and certain and, and uncertainty, that you have to find a way to extinguish all uncertainty and doubt. You're not going to, but you're not going to no matter what belief system or lack thereof that you ever have. I mean, it, you could be an atheist today and you're going to have uncertainties. You're going to have questions. You're going to have doubts within your atheism. Uh, agnosticism is defined by its uncertainties and by its doubts. So I, I jokingly said to a friend of mine who's agnostic, he said, well, I was left Christianity because I had too many doubts and uncertainties. I said, what are you now? He said, I'm an agnostic. I said, and that's defined by not knowing anything, right? And, you know, I was, of course, joking with them because that's uh, that's that's a loose definition of what being uh, yeah. an agnostic is. But the idea is, is uh, most agnostics are truly humble people because they're saying, well, hey, I, I'm not going to, as you pointed out, I think you talked about maybe your brother or your friend who said that, look, hey, and I, I think to ever claim that you're a Christian or to be a Christian, it takes too much certainty. I don't agree with that. Um, I think that you, you can have a lot of uncertainty and a lot of doubt while still being a Christian and still maintaining your intellectual honesty, especially if you understand faith through a Western lens and, or excuse yeah. me, an Eastern lens and not a Western lens. I think that when we understand faith the way it was originally taught, I have no problem living with uncertainties and doubts within my faith. And when we try to teach against that as Christians, that's one of the biggest problems I have with a lot of these websites that are like, we'll answer any question you have, and, and no matter what doubt you have, we'll put it to rest and all this stuff. It's like, no, no, you're not. You're going you're gonna to cause more problems teaching a framework to people that they have to put away all doubt and uncertainty in order to be a Christian. That's going to that's gonna mess people up more than telling them it's okay, and it's actually an essential part of faith to have all of these uncertainties and doubts. But that doesn't mean that that faith is just a blind leap and it's no different than believing in, 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 you know, the tooth fairy or whatever it might be. There are reasons there, 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 we, we can be intellectually honest. Some of the greatest minds to have ever lived and who live today are believers. So to say that you can't be, you know, intellectually honest and a Christian is silly. Um, it, it is, but I also think for Christians to level that charge against non-Christians and say, well, if you're honest, you would be a Christian. There's a lot of honest people out there who are not Christians. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful that we don't just misquote the psalmist and say, oh, well, only fools don't believe in God. You know, I think we have to be careful yeah. um, with how we use passages like that, because there are a lot of honest people 
who are Christians, and there's a lot of honest people who are not Christians. No, I think that's absolutely right. And keeping that at the forefront of our minds that we're all God's image bearers, even if you don't believe in God, okay, that's fine. We're all doing the best we can to navigate this life. And if nothing else, if we choose a philosophy that is predicated and built upon the foundation of love, and that is the primary guiding ethic by which we choose to lead our lives, well then, yeah, our lives are going to be better. Our communities are going to be better. Our families are going to be better. The world's going to be a better place. But then the question is, is why have you selected that ethic? Mm -hmm. And for me, the reason why I've selected that ethic is because it makes the most sense to me. And I choose to remain Christian because I see that fit hand in glove. That ethic fits hand in glove with Christianity. It's the ultimate expression of what that is. So, well, this has been a fun conversation, man. I've enjoyed it. We could probably keep going. And I don't know that I ever want to do another episode without notes. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. We'll see what happens. Hey, I love it, man. It just turns into two hours. It turns into two hours. I do like riffing on it, though. Yeah. But, well, uh, and, and yeah. If, if, if you like this conversation and you want a framework, uh, at least what I believe to be a better framework of understanding the Bible and kind of being able to sink your teeth into something more objective instead of what seemed to me to be this almost arbitrary pick and choosing of what we take from the Bible. If you want something more coherent, consistent, then then I hope you do get a copy of my book because these are the types of things I, I spent years studying, contemplating, talking to people much, 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 much smarter than I am. And, and, and being able to hopefully put together something that is, is easy to understand and something that will hopefully help you with your faith and how to study and read and apply the Bible. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that your book's going to help a lot of people. I mean, I haven't read it since you've revised it, but that early rough draft that you sent me last year, it's pure fire. Oh, it's changed a lot, man. It's changed a lot since then. Still good, baby. In any case, though, we love all of you. We appreciate all of you. And don't worry about your doubts because you're, you're going to have them. They'll change. I know I have fewer doubts than I had before, but I, I have new ones that have replaced the old ones. And that's yeah. fine. Like you said, Kevin, it's a part of faith. As we explore faith, we're going to explore our doubts. And as we pursue grace, we'll find it because our God is a gracious God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. And that is where I choose to put my faith and where I choose to put my belief. I choose to believe in that because it makes sense to me. Um, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for watching. If you like this video and you want to see, if you want more extemporaneous conversations that are unscripted, email us and let us know, hey, we really liked it. It seems like it was was a lot better or whatever. If you hated it, tell us that too. We want to hear from you. Drop us a line. We always have our email address in the show notes. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions or requests for stuff for us to talk about in the future, let us know. If you like our content, subscribe on our YouTube channel. Please do that. We're trying to grow this and trying to reach more people. We've helped a lot of people. We want to keep helping people. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Um, that's helpful as well. Share this podcast on social media. Join our Facebook conversation group. We appreciate all of you. We love all of you. And we wish you all a good night.